to come up with a new plan here, a way to get this message through because the message hasn't been learnt. And they've been released from their sentence, but they're by no means rehabilitated at all. And so we can expect the same behavior to surface before long. So Jill and I have to come at the problem from a different way. And that's going to be based in love and encouragement because we want to see them thrive and grow in the way that they should. But we're going to need to do a new thing if that's going to happen. Today we're um, continuing through the book of Isaiah. And it's a long book. And it's a fascinating, often poetic and profound book, as I'm sure many of you who are reading Immerse have found. Other than the Psalms, it's the book in the Bible that is quoted most by Jesus and the New Testament writers, above any other book of the Bible. And despite its depth and scope, it can actually be pretty well summed up in just two words. And those words are judgment and hope. The first 39 chapters are predominantly, but not entirely, about God's judgment. God's people are seen to be living in open rebellion, idolatry, corruption, and injustice. And God warns them that they better change their ways through the prophet Isaiah. And as Josh Hooker showed us last week in chapter 6, he actually tells Isaiah right at the start of his ministry, they're not going to listen to you. And all you're preaching is actually just going to harden their hearts, it says in verse 10. So chapter 39, at the end of the section, which is predominantly about judgment, points forward 100 years to the judgment that comes when the Babylonian army arrive and wreck Jerusalem and carry the people off into exile in a foreign land. From chapter 40 to chapter 66, the last 27 books the message contained in those is predominantly, although not entirely, but predominantly about hope. The Lord uses King Cyrus from Persia to come along and defeat the Babylonians who are holding the people of Judah in exile. And through that, they get released and they're able to return to Jerusalem and leave their captivity. And you might think that they would leave with joyful hearts, singing the praises of the Lord, um, full of faith in his goodness because he showed up and delivered them. But sadly, their experience has actually caused them to lose faith in God. Their suffering has driven them away from God and the grumble in their hearts and they blame him for all of their suffering. And so maybe a bit like Jill and I standing there in the toy room, God announces in chapter 43, verse 19, that he is gonna have to do a new thing. A new thing which is based in love and encouragement with an element of judgment. He says this, for I'm about to do something new. See, I have already begun, do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. The problem was that because of the people's hearts, the fact that they hadn't been changed, God knew that the bad behavior that had caused the exile was gonna surface again in no time. Up until this point in the book of Isaiah, Israel had been called the servant of God, but ultimately, in the human weakness that we all share, Israel had failed in their calling to be the light to the nations. And without intervention from God, loving intervention, they'd be stuck in a perpetual cycle of failure and exile. But verse uh, 
chapter 43, verse 19, with its poetic imagery, is a message of comfort and hope to the people of Judah. God's new, th new thing was going to bring a river of life and a pathway to those dry and hard and foreboding places, namely the hearts of his people. There are two figures in the book of Isaiah that provide this hope that runs throughout the book. And the first uh, one we see in the early chapters of the book is an anointed king from the line of David who will come and rule with justice and liberate the people and usher in a period of peace. And the second figure from the later part of the book is referred to as the servant. And there's four passages which kind of describe who the servant is and it moves away from Israel to an individual. There are four poetic passages called the servant songs. Today we're focusing on the fourth of those songs and it's all about the suffering servant. There have been a lot of things said about this passage over the years. It's been called the gospel of the Old Testament. It's been called the fifth gospel. It's been called the richest and loftiest chapter in the Old Testament. And that uh, great reformer Martin Luther once said that every Christian should memorize this chapter. And there's two main reasons why everyone thinks, or so many people down the ages think that this is so important. The first is because this chapter is actually central to the new thing that God was going to do in response to the main question of the entire Old Testament. That question was this. How do sinful people be made right with a holy God who hates sin? Like, how's that ever going to happen? The second reason why people really lift this passage up and think it's important is because really from start to finish, Isaiah 53 is a stunningly accurate prophecy of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And it was written down seven centuries before he was born. As we look at the passage itself, we see it's remarkably symmetrical. There's five groups of three verses. The outer groups, group, uh, groups one and five, are all about the exaltation of the servant. And the, the whole passage, the whole chapter begins with these words. It says, see, my servant will prosper and be highly exalted. And that's symbolic of the language that's found in those, those passages. And then the inner groupings, groupings two and four, are about the rejection of the Lord's servant. And we read things there like he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. And what those outer parts are doing is really framing the central heartbeat of the whole book, the whole passage, which is verses four, five, and six. And this is where the judgment of God and the hope that can only come from God and also where the anointed king and the suffering servant, this is where all of this comes together in these verses. And they're seen to come together in a person. And we know that that person's name was Jesus Christ. So we start at verse four and it says, yet it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we know that Jesus, who was free from sin, having lived a perfect life, takes on our sickness of sin and is weighed down by it. And we see that in his prayer of anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he goes to the cross, where he sweats drops of blood because he's 
soul is in so much anguish. And then we go to verse five, the first part of verse five, and it says, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Jesus went to the cross. One of the uh, accusations that was made against him was that he was a blasphemer because he did things like heal lepers on the Sabbath, going to the margins and lifting up those who were oppressed and cast out. And many people who looked at that thought, you know what, he's getting exactly what he deserves because he shouldn't have done that because it was the Sabbath. And then we read on in verse five and it kind of changes here and it says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Jesus suffered in our place. His blood was spilled so that ours doesn't have to be. And in Hebrews 9, verse 22, it tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And this passage is kind of written from the point of someone in the future looking back to the work that Jesus has done. It talks about we. He was crushed for our sins. And you realize actually he's talking about the people of Israel looking back at some point in the future and recognizing their Messiah. And that is still to come about. Verse six says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So in that last bit, there's judgment. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. And it's judgment on the whole mess that's going on in creation, then and now. Oppression, injustice, greed, corruption. But there's hope. There's hope because it's God and it's God who loves us and desires human flourishing and he desires creation to be liberated from this uh, oppression of sin and death. And so we see the hope and it says, because the Lord laid on him, his only son, the sins of us all. For each and every one of us, a price has to be paid for our sin. It must be paid. But that everlasting hope is that it has been paid. It has been paid by God's perfect son. And when he was raised to life again, God proved that the power of sin and death had been broken for all who would come and receive that free gift that was won for us on the cross through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel as revealed 700 years before the New Testament through the prophet Isaiah. It's the message of his entire book and it's the central message of the Bible. So what does all of this mean for us as we go through this world today and look around and wonder maybe what Isaiah would have said to the church, to God's people now. We live in a world that often appears to be living in open rebellion and like sheep have gone astray and I think there's two things that we can look at that can help us stay close to God in these times. So the first thing is I believe Isaiah would call us with God's words to put our trust in God alone. 
not to put our trust anywhere else, to live in the constant awareness of what he has done for us on the cross, of our own brokenness, but our new identity raised and cleaned down as children of God. That we wouldn't put our trust in finances or popularity or the number of followers we have. And that actually with our trust found in God, we would be strong and robust and movable. It's said these days and maybe in all days that suffering is a fact of life and most of us can agree with that statement in some way but Isaiah would warn us not to make the same mistake that the people of Judah did in their suffering because what they had done was they let their suffering drive them away from God instead of moving them closer to him. God is good and he's loving and he has a purpose for all things that happen and we've always got to stay close to that. And in those days they didn't have fuller revelation and we know that there are truths have been revealed to us like God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so in the power of the Holy Spirit we need to hang on and not let our times of suffering drive us away from God, but actually take us closer to him, knowing that he is the one who left behind the glory of heaven to come to earth to suffer in our place. If we let those times of suffering bring us closer to God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be said of us one day as it is said of him in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. I think there's hope there that suffering is not meaningless, it's not pointless. And one day, those who put their trust in God will see and be satisfied. Secondly, I think Isaiah would be telling us that having received this new identity through the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to rest idly, as children of God, but to get up and to get involved and to champion God's mission, to bring justice, to lift up the cause of the oppressed, to spread the good news about the judgment of, and hope that is found in the person of Jesus and to work and to live to his praise and glory. I was reminded three weeks ago when we had Fakuru and Shalom here along with Chris from Open Doors, just the fact that Across the world, there are Christians every day who risk being killed because they follow Jesus and because they esteem the name of Jesus. And our experience here is probably not typical of living in peace and security. And talking to them after, it was really uh, convicting to find out that the thing that they actually wanted us to do more than anything was not to forget them because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're one family through the blood of Jesus and to pray for them, to pray for them every day. And they said to know that their family of God in the, in the church in these countries was remembering them and prayed for them um, was just the most encouraging thing they could imagine. If they knew that was going on, it would really bolster their hope. And, I, and it just in, sort of convicted me to think, I don't, I don't pray that often for those guys. I don't think about them that often. I get stuck in my own wee kind of church world here and think, yeah, it's just good to be a Christian, but for many people, it isn't. And it was just a really good reminder to think about the whole family of God. And actually, you know, when we look at the news, there's so much 
tragedy and it can become overwhelming and, and actually there's a healthy thing in stepping away at times. But I think it's important also to value the prayers that we pray for places like Turkey and Syria and other things that we see that seem way out there and sometimes the prayers can see to seem tokenistic but they're valuable and not to give up and to keep on praying, keep on talking to God, keep on asking him to move and to move us all towards that new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. And at the end of the prophecy of Isaiah, it's outlined for us a little bit there in Isaiah 66, where God talks about making all things new. And he says this, he says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people to be a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. So as we wait, even as we suffer, let's remember the one that we put our trust in and know that he is good and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our hope is well found in you. We thank you that you sent your son to be the suffering servant, the servant king who did not esteem his place in heaven, but actually forsook that and stooped down to serve us and to wash us clean and to make us new, knowing that we could not do that ourselves. Lord, help us to live in the reality of that every day. Allow it to soften our hearts, Lord, to each other, to the things that we see going on in the world. And Lord, let your broken, beautiful people go out into the world, Lord, and spread light and bring joy and peace and justice and love in the name of Jesus. Amen. Johnny, thank you. It's a wonderful sense of the presence of the Lord. What I'd love us to do for this last song is just remain seated. And uh, the band are going to sing, How Great Is Your Love. And in that place, let the Lord continue to minister to us by his Holy Spirit to, to sh continue to show us that he loves us deeply. And perhaps in that place where we may harbor disappointment or bitterness, to let that go. And to know the fact that God is filling us with his Holy Spirit and sending, sending us out as as representatives of God on earth in all that we say and do. So we'll worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness.